Welcome to Takeaways, Life Lessons Learned. I'm your host, Hayam Mizrahi. Join me as I explore my takeaways from the people who have influenced me the most. Let's get started. I am here with Stephanie Tuzman. Did I say it right? Mm-hmm. Who is the president and CEO of Jewish Nevada, also known as Jewish Federation. We'll talk about what the difference is, what that means, if there is a difference or not. Uh, you also oversee the JCC, the Jewish Community Center, and we'll go into those acronyms as well. You're originally from West Bloomfield, Michigan. Previous guest was also a Michigander, Michael Saltman. Uh, you have a BA from, it. you didn't know that? No. He's like through and through. Wow. Yeah. We learned that on Takeaways Podcast. That might be my, uh, my, my shoe in with him. There you go. <laughs> you have a BA from Western Michigan University in organizational communication. I bet that comes in handy these days. Uh, your bio says that you've been in the Jewish nonprofit world nearly your entire professional career. Mm-hmm. So what have you done outside of the Jewish nonprofit world? Mm-hmm. Yeah. In 2004, I came back to Las Vegas for a summer. My parents moved here when I started college in Michigan. They were tired of the cold winters and moved to Vegas. So in the summer of 2004, I came out here to spend my summer here, and I worked at Channel 8. I interned at Channel 8, and I made like a video reel, a news reel. I, I latched on to a reporter who I spent like the entire summer with, and I thought for sure I was going to go back to school and major in broadcast journalism. And so I went back to Western and uh, had a conversation, an exploratory conversation about what that might look like. And uh, ultimately, I changed my mind, <laughs> but, uh, but I did that. And then- Were you going to be like a TV anchor? Or was that the end goal? That was the goal. News to be a news reporter. Otherwise? No, news reporter. Weather? Yeah, no, no weather girl. No weather girl. Not a blonde. Um, but, uh, but just a n- news reporter. And I thought for sure that that was going to happen. My-, my um, when you intern at Channel 8, they let you, like, every day you come in and it's up to you to make the day what you want it to be. So you find a reporter that you want to go with on their assignment and they let you do a newsreel if there's time available or you sit in on, you know. So um, I don't know if you remember the 311 boys case. There was, like, a mm. bunch of high school boys that threw a rock over, like, a wall, a retaining wall, and they killed unfortunately another teen it was like a very big case they called themselves the 311 boys anyways that's what was happening that summer and so it was very interesting uh, news so you were chasing down that story i was chasing down that story i was in the new, in the courtroom um you know reporting outside the courtroom i mean you do what you can for the for the tape for the mm-hmm. reel that you would then send a news station to get hired or whatever it did not it did not Go great. I was All right, not, so media not was not, not your thing, but Jewish nonprofits are. Well, then I graduated from college in organizational communication, and I and I started working for an online poker site. So that's another <laughs> interesting story. I worked for an online poker site. They were based in Curacao, actually, but they had a U.S. office, and that was the height of online poker out here when the World Series of Poker was at the Rio. That I remember, and it was big. I mean, it was big. They were it was huge, and we were their U.S. operations. So anytime they had like a high roller online that qualified for the World Series, they'd fly them out here, and we'd wine and dine them. So um, we did, you know. 
like a ton of fun, really fun stuff. And it was actually Yom Kippur of 2006 when they called me and said, you got to come into the office. We have bad news. And I was like, I'm just leaving services, like whatever. I'm hungry. I went in and they said, it's over. The fun is over. They passed the online gambling ban in 2006. Mm. My office, the U.S. office shut down. There were just three of us. I'm still in touch with the other two guys. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so I lost my job there. And it was then that I got connected to BBYO. Okay, I'm going to ask you more about your life in okay. Jewish nonprofits. But okay. let me finish the intro. Okay. So I mentioned that you're what you do with Jewish Nevada and JCC, but I'll also add that you are passionate, you're tenacious, you are anxious, you're a public speaker, you're a social media influencer with your Stephanie Says segments, you're a charcuterie enthusiast, you're a connector, a fundraiser, and you are a CEO. CEO. So I'll push pause there and say, welcome to Takeaways, Stephanie. Thanks. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Those are my words. Let me volley it back to you and tell me in your own words, who are you and what do you do? I'm a mom. I'm a friend. And I'm just a girl trying to do good. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Just a girl trying to do good. Um, yeah. I'm all the things you said. I'm anxious. I'm tenacious. I'm pretty self-aware. Um, but yeah. Just a girl trying to do good. So Mom. Talk about um, your family. I am married for the last nine years, um, and I have two kids, one uh, seven-year-old girl named Tova and a three-year-old boy named Jonah. What are they into? <laughs> Tova is just, I'm sure, like your girls, uh, seven going on 17, and uh, <laughs> totally going to give me a run for my money. They both look very much like my husband, but they are both very much my personality. Tova is a firecracker. I mean, she does not take no for an answer. She will push back. She will negotiate all of the things I did and do still. Um, and I keep telling her that one day those skills will pay off. But right now, get in line uh, because uh, you're seven. Um, but no, they're they're great. Uh, Tova goes to Adelson and she's really thriving um, there. And Jonah's at Shanker and, you know, both both really excellent. Tova likes gymnastics. Jonah. That I know because I see yeah. her there from time to time. Yeah, she's there two days a week. She really likes gymnastics. I, I love when she tries to tell me she's going to be a gymnast one day. I think, oh, that's so sweet. But Don't you know. ruin her dreams. No, no, no. I support everything she wants to do. Um, and Jonah's a boy who loves trucks and cars and trains and dinosaurs and all the things. And so we're going to try to channel his energy into soccer, I think, or <laughs> t-ball or something like that. But not yet. A lot of energy? A lot of energy. Yeah. Yeah. So you were starting to say 2006, you found your way over to BBYO, another acronym that's Neighborhood Youth Organization, which I'm right. very familiar with because I was in it. And I was also the city director for a hot minute here in, in Las Vegas. That's how we met. Yeah. So take me back. How did you get into the Jewish nonprofit world? Yeah. So I, this whole poker thing did not work out. And um, I interviewed several times at Curve and Doak, which is a public relations firm in town. And I never got the job. And I was so disappointed. But I think everything happens for a reason. I really believe that. And, and um, a friend of mine said... BBYO was hiring. I grew up in BBYO. I was in Michigan region BBYO and um, and loved it. Um, and I 
it's funny when you're a teen, you don't think that there's actually professionals that are running that organization. Like I never thought to myself, someone gets paid to do that job. Um, but that, yeah. So I had a call with Jamie David, who you know also, and I will never forget, like her kids were in the bathtub. It was the most informal first interview ever. Um, and said, yes, I want to work for BBYO. So I started in 2006 and um, it was right around 2009 uh, when, uh, well, one of my predecessors, the former CEO of the Jewish Federation called me and said, do you want to come in and talk about opportunities to work at the Federation? So that's what happened. I went in. I had a meeting with him. I said, no. That was Elliot? That was Elliot. I don't know if we can say that. <laughs> that Why was not? Elliot. I guess. That was I'm Elliot. I'm going to bring him up later anyway. Yeah. Okay, good. That was Elliot. And um, and uh, yeah, he sat me down and said, you're doing great work, but you can't be a BBYO city director forever. I was offended at first. And then I thought, well, where am I going to go from here? He's and actually giving you a compliment. That's right. He? And he said, yeah, for sure. And um, and he said, come work for the Federation. And uh, so he brought me on board as director of Young so Leadership. So he, he recognized talent and was recruiting talent. Totally. I, I Yes. All right. So what did you do initially? I was the director of Young Leadership. Yep. All right, before we go into what is Director of Young Leadership, yeah, explain what is the Jewish Federation, why is it called Jewish Nevada? Yeah. There are 146 Jewish federations around the country. Jewish Federation is tasked with assessing and addressing the needs of a Jewish community. So here statewide, we have 76,000 Jews, and our responsibility is to create and— How many Jews? 76,000. Yeah. And our responsibility um, is to create and sustain vibrant Jewish life, but also to take care of those in need. So um, we have a mission statement, uh, which fulfills those two uh, those two things. But ultimately, um, we're a fundraising organization. When we integrate it, which I guess we could get into, but when we integrated with the JCC in 2018, we also became a programmatic organization. And so we do those things side by side. So fundraising is, is the Jewish Federation part. Programs is the JCC part. So JCC stands for Jewish Community Center and this is historically around America. You correct me if I'm wrong. You fact check me on this one. Uh, was it World War One or two when these started popping up? I oh, don't know. this so I can't. Two, once I upon think. a time, After two, I think. once upon a time in America, Jews were not allowed into country clubs. Yeah, and so in many communities, they essentially built their own community centers yes. where they were allowed to go and swim in the pool and work out and do all the things you would do in a community center. Yeah, and so many many communities in America have these things called JCCs. And that's essentially where you go. And the youth programs are there. The senior programs are there, et cetera. We've never had one in our community, a physical building, but we do have an organization here that does provide programs. I'm doing quotes around that for the community. Right. So it's funny because, um, again, the JCC has a national movement, as you mentioned. And so people that are familiar with your typical JCC building, uh, they'll come to Las Vegas and they'll call our office and go, where's the building? Can I come use the pool? I'm a member here. And, you know, and so I always go, well, no, we don't actually have a pool or a gym, but, you know, here's where Mm -hmm. we are. But one of the benefits actually of being a JCC member of our JCC is that they can have reciprocity at other communities that do have a pool or a gym. So if you're visiting a community that does have one of those JCCs um, and you're a member here, you can use your membership there, which is cool. So back to Federation, this is the organization that 
assesses the community needs, does the fundraising, and then all- makes allocations to organizations that provide for the needs that you've assessed that you need to take care of. Yes. JCC is has historically been one of those things. So the Federation raises the money and makes some allocation for the JCC, but you mentioned 2018? Yes. They've become integrated yes. really from a efficiency and operational standpoint. Totally. So you don't necessarily need two of things. You're scaling them back as a, essentially one is helping to fund the other. Totally. The yeah. organization, the JCC as, an, as a standalone organization was just never um, really large enough to sustain themselves. I mean, it just, it really just didn't make sense. Mm-hmm. Um we didn't dissolve the 501c3. It still exists. And eventually, if and when the time comes and they want to, you know, we want to break it off and, and we, we can um, so that they can sort of run their own entity. But this makes a lot of sense on the back of the house. All right, so and now- a lot of federations around the country. Sorry. A lot of federations yeah. around the country are, are sort of um, uh, um, um, Integrating? I'm sorry, adopting this model. Mm. Okay. So you're a pioneer. I should add that to the intro. I guess so. <laughs> All right. So. I, although I didn't have anything to do with it, my other predecessor was uh, really that's Todd. That was Todd, and he really that was him. I mean, I can't uh, I can't take a ton of credit because I didn't become CEO until November of 2018, and he um, and he they, they, we did that in the summer of 2018. So. All right, let's go back to, now we know the organizations. When Elliot says to you, you should come work for the Federation, we know what he's saying to you, and now you're in charge yeah. of young leadership. Young leaders, yeah. And what does a young yeah. leadership director yeah, do? Yeah, so Federation, our aim is to engage Jews in the community through various affinity groups, right? So common interests, common age groups, common likes, things like that. So there's a young leaders group where we would gather young leaders for programming and connection, ultimately with an eye of to fundraise, um, but it would be bar nights and it would be happy hours and it would be, um, you know, uh, um, I'm not, I'm trying to like off my head, think of, you know, different types of parties around the holidays and whatnot, things that young adults want to gravitate mm-hmm. to. Um, but we also have a women's philanthropy group. We have a men's division, which I'm sure will come up. Um, we had at one point lawyers, doctors, real estate, you know, we had business professionals. I mean, all these different ways in which you can connect people, Jews to, to each other and to the community and to our work uh, with an eye to fundraise. Is it just Jewish causes? No. It's not. It's not just Jewish co- Jewish causes, and and we've actually expanded uh, quite a bit in in terms of our allocations and the agencies in our community that we that we allocate to. Um, it's a very Jewish value to take care of others, and um, and so uh, so yeah. So anyone can apply for a grant through our through our grant round and our our allocations process. But then you know the organization determines um, through by committee uh, who who will receive dollars. I mean we have certain missions and values, and there are things that um, that have to align for an organization to apply for a grant through us. Okay. So back to you and your little journey. Yes. Not so little journey. Yeah. So you did the BBYO thing, which is high school. Now you're in the young leadership phase. What'd you do next? Yeah. So in in I did young leaders from 2009 to about 2011. There was a void in the women's philanthropy department in 2011. The women's philanthropy director left, and Elliot pulled me in again and said. Uh, do you want to serve as a women's philanthropy director? Now, that was a big promotion. That was a big promotion at the time. And I, like, remember thinking, oh, my God, like, he, like the women in our community are, I mean, still, this is, I, I thought it then, but I still totally feel it now. They are powerhouses. I mean, we're talking about, I don't want to name names here, 
but we're talking about the Jane Shores and Cheryl Goldsteins and like these just Mary Madison. I mean, these giants that are um, so well respected and um, and they the are still to this day women's philanthropy makes up about sixty percent of the campaign. The numbers have shifted a bit, but they're I mean they're pretty. They program a ton. They're very generous. They were making the household decisions about philanthropy. Um, and they also um, had a very particular way of pro- – I mean, they still do, but high expectations of programming. Their luncheons are beautiful and something people want to go to, and they always have great speakers. So when he said, do you want to be the director of women's philanthropy, I was like, oh, my God, this is a big deal. <laughs> like, and I remember having a meeting. Uh, a couple of the women interviewed me. Um and he gave me some tips like, don't say this to them. Don't call them ladies. Don't do, you know, whatever. And I sat in that room and Janice Rounds said, Elliot, you cannot do this to her. Like, she is going to get eaten alive by these women. And um, I don't even feel bad saying that um, on here because Janice now laughs about how mm. uh, she was wrong. Like, I definitely rose to the occasion. And she'll say a lot of times, like, she was fearful that, like, I was so going to go said, rushing. So she said, Elliot, you can't. Put her in the room with them? No, like just even in the role. She was like oh, afraid that these oh, women okay. would sort of uh, eat me alive and I would never survive in this role because they're tough. I mean, they could be tough, but. Um, um, but you rose to it? I rose to the occasion. And what did you do after women's philanthropy? So women's philanthropy I did for for most of my uh, tenure at the Federation before becoming CEO. And, um, and he combined it with um, – uh, director of annual campaigns. So the positions sort of became one. We didn't have a chief development officer and Elliot and I worked hand in hand in the annual campaign. And I also spent um, still 60, uh, 50 to 60% of my time on women's philanthropy. So not only did you so do did this that. big job, you took on another big job with it. Totally. Made it look easy. They just, yeah, they throw more work at you and pay you the same. So that's how it, was, it works. Yeah, right? exactly. So it was great. <laughs> it was great. It was great. All right. And then between your next move to CEO, there was a Todd in the mix. There was a Todd in the mix, but there was also a move for me. You moved. So That's right. you remember I moved to Detroit for a year. And, and broke so, the community's heart. Yeah. my Yeah. Well, it was like, you know, my, Elliot was leaving in 2015 and John said to me, I have this opportunity. My husband, John said to me, I have this opportunity to go to Detroit and work at the property in downtown Detroit, they had an MGM grand down there and they were doing really great. And it's so funny to think about it now that we're in this post-COVID world where everything can be done on Zoom. But then MGM packed us up, like helped us to find a place to live, moved us cross country. Um, but I knew that I wanted to stay in the Federation world. So I started working at the Jewish Federation of Metropolitan Detroit. And um, it was like right down the street from where I grew up. And um, it was an incredible experience. I was the director of Next Gen, which is their young leaders uh, division. And it had its own department of um, eight professionals and about a $2 million budget. So, so by title, it sounds like you took a step back, but operationally, not so. No. And everybody who knows the Federation um, system, in the, the Federation in Detroit, uh, knows there are about a $20 million annual campaign. And Young Leaders was an area that they were really investing in. So um, Miriam Rosenzweig, who was my predecessor as the director of Next Gen, she's now the CEO in Milwaukee at their Federation. But she, I mean like did incredible things for that program and then was ready to hand it off to someone. So the CEO of the Federation at the time came out here to Vegas to interview me. He was at um he was at the win for I don't remember if it was a shore 
wedding, maybe, whatever. He was out here and said to me, because he's related to the Shores, which is like a whole other story, but, um, and he came, and he came out here and we met and he said to me, this is like a big deal. And I said, I remember saying to him, I'm not a visionary. Like Miriam was a visionary. She had a vision for what next gen looked like, but I'm an executor. Like if you give me a plan, I can put it into action. And he said, I don't need a visionary anymore. I need someone who can execute. So, um, so I, so yeah, I started working at the Federation in Detroit. And that, I think that position, the, the, the fact that I had eight team members and a $2 million budget somewhat prepared me mm. for stepping into this role. And then you moved back? And then I moved back. So we were there for about a year and a few months. And um, MGM said to John, if you're going to advance with the organization at all, that, on, that has to happen in, in Vegas. And so... It wasn't because you re-experienced a winter and you guys were like... <laughs> no, in fact, we, we had a couple mild winters and I thought that was because of us. We took out the, you know, we took the mild weather from <laughs> Vegas with us. Um, but no, and then... I, so I had Tova there. Actually, she was born in Detroit. And, um, and we just came back. So I called Todd before this was even happening and I said, do you have a place for me I want to come back to the Federation. And he said, yes, actually, there are some things that are shifting around here. And so I stepped right back into women's philanthropy and annual campaign. So right, it's like you didn't right skip back. a beat. It's like I didn't skip a beat. It was like okay. a year and some change. And it wasn't even two years. And I came right back. And then Todd moved. So yeah, so in 2018, after they integrated with the JCC, Todd said to me, I want you to go run the JCC. And I was like, wait, what? I don't know the first thing about... <laughs> Running a JCC, it's different than Federation. I mean, I it's very different. I mean, I wasn't, it was very different. So I, I heard him out. I Like, I remember being in his office and he was showing me on the whiteboard, like, what the organizational structure was going to look like. And he was like, this is a very big deal. He did give me a bump, a little salary bump to do Finally. it. And he said, yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> I think I, at this point I got, I had gotten something. Know, but, <laughs> but no, I mean, and so he said, like, he was showing me organizationally, and I could see his like vision of how this was going to happen. But I was like, JCC, I don't know the first thing about JCC. And he was like, well, you'll just be running it. You get yourself a program director. He gave me a budget. He, he said, yes, we can hire people or whatever. So that was July. And by November, I was the CEO. So like it happened very quickly. He decided his family that was in Cleveland, his kids needed him. He was doing a lot of commuting back and forth and um, that he just wanted to be closer to them. And so I don't know if you want to get into that yet, but um, I can share how I became CEO. Yeah. Actually, let me let's put a pause <laughs> in the story. We're going to come back to it, but right. let's put a pause here All for right. a second because right. um, this show is called Takeaways, and it's about takeaways from people who have influenced me. Believe it or not, you have influenced me wow. quite a bit, yeah. and I ask everyone the same question. Yeah. What has been the single most influential thing or event in your life that has defined or shaped you the most? You sent this to me the other night, and I thought to myself, God, that's so hard. I don't know that there is one particular moment, but I can tell you um, that in 2012, I think it was 2012, I found out that the Children's Museum was moving out of their building, um, their old building downtown, and they were moving into the new space where they are now at the Smith Center. I think it was 2012 or must have been. Anyways, they were hiring for a VP of development, like a chief development officer. And someone sent me the job description and I was like, yes, I want to do that. I want to do that. I interviewed. 
I made it to the next round. I interviewed, I made it to the next round. Then I was sitting in the CEO's office and they offered me the job. And they told me what they were going to pay me, which was like way more than I was making in Federation. <laughs> but they told me what they were going to pay me. And I went back to the office. And I even, I know, I like remember this vividly because it was the same weekend that Roy and Amy Moas got married. And not that that means anything to you, but I was in their wedding. And I <laughs> remember just really dealing with this, like this, um, this issue. And I, I, I went to Elliot and I said, and I was so nervous. I mean, there's a lot you could say about Elliot. He was he was not always an easy guy to work for. He was very passionate and we had a great relationship, but I was so nervous to tell him that I was going to take this job with the Children's Museum. I was going to leave the Federation and take this job. And um, and I did. I told him I was accepting the position at the Children's Museum. I'm sorry. I'm, let, you know, I'm letting you know. I'm giving you a month, blah, blah, blah. Okay. I walk out of his office and he wrote me, I wish I still had it, but there's so many moves in between, but he wrote me the six-page letter where ultimately the 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 crux of the letter was that there the children's museum can find anybody to fundraise for them anybody but the jewish community cannot like the jewish community cannot find anybody who passionately serves the jewish people like jews do because jews take care of jews and ultimately i thought to myself like like wow like the jewish community needs me like that was that was literally that was a pivotal moment so then i pissed off the children's museum because after i had accepted the position i turned it down and um i mean i love the children's museum so if anyone from the children's museum hears this i i love them i just <laughs> they can blame I, elliot I needed to take care of the Jewish people. That was like my pivotal moment in my in my professional career where I was like, this is, and now I've even used that line on Megan or other people who have tried to leave Federation. Like, no. There, Megan's no, tried but, to leave? No, I don't want to get her in trouble. <laughs> but um, but no, but like ultimately that like there is nobody else who can do this job. That's, um... Were you expecting me to say something like no, that? What that, were you I, thinking I was going to say? You know what's interesting about this question? So a BBYO friend of mine once asked me this question, and I'm like, wow. Like, what a great question. Uh, there's no expectation. I did – I'll geek out a bit on this. I did tinker with the question to take out what person. I don't have that in there because typically the answer is my parents. And so uh, naturally, your parents are a big influence on you, but – I have no idea what what this question brings, but it's always an interesting answer, and I wasn't expecting that at all. Yeah, I could have gone a million different ways, but I think in reflecting on my professional career, I I have so many days where I think to myself, this job is so hard. Like, why do I do this job? Mm -hmm. And then I, I think about that. Like, I'm going to get emotional. Like, nobody else is taking care of us. Yeah, you're on a mission. I'm on a mission. Every day. That's right. And you get to be on mission. Right. Is that the root of where the passion comes from? I, I, I guess. I mean, I think so. I don't, I mean, no. I mean, listen, I could trace it back to my BBYO days. Mm -hmm. I could trace it back to my grandparents who were Holocaust survivors. I could, you know, there are a lot of things along the way, but I don't think I ever thought I was going to be in this role. I don't think when I got an organizational communication, you know, bachelor's degree in organizational communication, I'd be doing this. I was going to be a news reporter and, or an online <laughs> poker site. Like, I don't know. <laughs> Weather girl. Yeah. <laughs> All right. No, that's great. Um, I want to pick up the story of Todd leaving and you becoming CEO within a few months. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, so what happened there? So I met with Marla Letizia, who was then board chair of Jewish Federation. But we were Jewish Federation of Las Vegas. We didn't even touch on that. And the name change was Todd's fault. So anybody watching this who doesn't like the name change or listening to this, uh, that's Todd's fault. Um, and I still get grief for it. There are other there. I think there are three other federations in the country that use that like statewide name mm-hmm. because they're the only federation in the state. But um, but I think it should have been Jewish Federation of Nevada. I didn't get a vote. Anyways. It's more hip to say Jewish Nevada. But some people go, ooh, like they'll say like, oh, I'm like, go see the Federation. And then they'll go, oops, sorry, it's Jewish Nevada. But like, we are a Federation. I I hate that, that those two things. Yeah, when you get into branding, it's like everyone knows what the Federation is for a hundred years. That's right. And so why not just call it that? And then the other thing, well, let's rebrand Jewish Nevada because it's more encompassing of what we're doing statewide, not just here in Las Vegas or Southern Nevada. But also, it's a it's a forward name or a forward thinking brand right. in a way. Right. So that so that was I his. Get, I get it. Yeah. So that was his feeling about it, and I don't hate him for I it. I thought Marla was behind it because she's a, a PR advertising she, professional. No, she probably was a part of the conversation, but yeah. So it's Todd. So when I, we say Jewish Nevada, it's the same thing as Jewish Federation and vice versa. Yes. Yes, yes. If there was one takeaway from this <laughs> podcast, yes. For the people that this matters to. <laughs> yes. Um, and it's okay to say Jewish Nevada or Jewish Federation. No, right. Nobody's getting offended. That's right. That's right. Okay. Um, so I went to Marla, who was then the um, board chair, and she had just contracted with a consulting firm, a recruiting firm that is pretty big in the Jewish community, and they were going to do a nationwide search for a new CEO. Um, and she said to me, you'll step in in this interim role for a little bit. And I was like, yes, of course. And uh, they they signed a contract with this new consulting firm. And about a week went by. And I think I had a couple conversations with Todd. And Todd took me to breakfast and said to me, why, why don't you consider this? And I was like, what? I don't like I didn't think that was I said to him, I yes, ultimately, I would love to be the CEO, but I don't I don't think I'm ready for that yet. And he said, why? Stephanie, you can do this. You can, you know, and he has been very supportive of me even now. So I went to Marla and I said, what about putting, what about putting like me throwing my hat in the ring? And I think, and I don't want to throw Marla under the bus. I don't think she was in support of it at first. I don't think she saw the vision of what that could mean. I think she had a preconceived notion of what a CEO looks like. And I know that's in your notes, but everyone <laughs> does. And so they have this sort of preconceived notion of of, of that um, and that role. And, um, and I don't think she saw it. She met with the executive committee. And I know there are some people on that um, – executive committee like Josh Pianco and Karen Sporn, who were very vocal in support of me being the CEO, which was amazing. And ultimately, Marla was too. Um, And then, so she came back to me and said, so they canceled the consulting firm. And Marla came back to me and said, we want to put you in front of the board and and have you sort of interview for the role. So she they made a list of stakeholders, past board uh, board chairs, um, the board of directors that I should meet with, and it took about a two week sort of um, you know roadshow, if you will, or or interview process. And um, and they asked questions. I mean, you saw my Fed talk, so they asked some difficult questions about how I would handle certain situations. And and from the very beginning, I said. Like I'll rely on I'll I'll, I'll learn I'll, I'll rely on other resources. Like basically, ask the board to invest in me, and to let me do the things I am good at. So, how old were you at this time? I was um, 
36. So, yeah. That was 36. 35. <laughs> so at the time, I was the youngest Federation CEO. I'm not anymore, but at the time, I was. <laughs> <laughs> Nationally, you're yeah. saying. Yeah, yeah, nationally. All right, so let me just kind of tell you what I heard. Yeah. So the CEO was relocating. And the board was doing what the board typically does, which is you hire the consulting firm. They do a national search. They find candidates that are you know interested, eager, um, and ultimately through the process, the board determines if they're a fit for our community. And that's what they were going to do. And you were encouraged by Todd to put your name in the ring. Why not you? Well, here's why not. You're 35 years old. You've never been a CEO, not even close by age or by positions and whatnot. Yep. And so the preconception is we're looking for a CEO, an existing CEO. Right. And not to knock anybody. I mean, that's, I can understand that. Totally. But here you are saying, Hey, I, I want to, I want to take a shot. I don't know everything. I will learn. I'm willing to learn. And if you invest in me, I think I'm the right person. Yeah. That's really, that's what happened. And, and then at the ripe age of 35, you became the youngest Federation CEO nationally. Yeah. Or internationally. Uh, we, yeah. But there are no, I don't, there's not, yeah. <laughs> we'll just say nationally. We don't need to yeah. sensationalize yeah. it because it's already yeah, pretty yeah. sensational. Yeah, I guess. Sure. What do you think about that? <laughs> um, yeah. I think that I was the, and I still believe that I am, but at that moment, I was the perfect person for the role in the moment that the Federation was in. Like I, like, like there was a lot of community trust I had already built and relationships that I had already formed. And with Todd leaving, it felt to the, I didn't want the community to feel let down. Like they were going to now welcome somebody else in. Like Todd was here for a couple was, of years, right? He was here for a couple of years. And that's not a long time, right? It isn't a long time. And, and there, it isn't a long time. And I think that, I think that with that, like bringing someone else new in would have set the Federation back a bit. And we needed, because there was like, before, when Elliot left and before Todd came on board, there was a year where there was like nobody at the helm, leadership turned over, the staff turned over. It was like, you know, I mean, I was getting messages when I was in Detroit, like, what's going on, you know, what's going on with this or this is happening, you know, and, um, and so I think, I think that having me, a familiar person, step up at that moment was, was what the community needed. Yeah. I was welcomed like it was a process and I think some people doubted it for sure. Some people probably still do. I mean, I'm not you think everyone's so? cup of tea. Um, but I think that for the most part it was like like people were super excited about it. So you mentioned that you asked them to invest in you. You asked the board to invest in yeah. you. What is what does that mean? So what that looked like right off the bat was an executive coach. I said to the board, I need a coach. I don't think either of my predecessors had one. Uh, but for me, getting an executive coach was was number one. And that's part of your compensation package. Yeah. Yeah. And now, so for the first um, for the first year of, of being CEO, JFNA actually paid for it. They invested in new CEOs around the country. I onboarded in 2018. I went to New York with five other new CEOs. So we onboarded together. I still talk to those guys. Some One of them actually is not in his role anymore, but I still talk to them for the most part. And, and as part of that, they offered you an executive coach. But I have been working, her name is Amy. I've been working with Amy ever since. 
You just throw out another acronym. You have to explain it. What is JFNA? So, right. we ta- I think we touched on this before. Yeah. But JFNA is the Jewish Federations of North America, but it, it operates differently than some other organizations in our community because the federation, in order to be a federation and to use the federation name, we pay dues to the parent organization. So dues are calculated based on the size of your campaign and the size of your community. There's a dues formula. And each year, our federation is responsible for paying um, a percentage of our dues or, or uh, you know, to the national mm. office to be considered a federation, to use their resources and their support. Uh, but, but Jewish federations of North America is our representative on the national scale. So and they're so lobbying for us in them, D.C. Yeah, one of the resources was this executive coach. Yeah. All right, sorry, they're lobbying for... No, I was just going to say nationally that JFNA is responsible for representing federations around the country on a national stage. So lobbying for us in D.C., you know, at the federal level of things that are important, uh, you know, being our, our voice in Israel and um, and around the world, that, that sort of thing. So they do provide campaign resources and marketing resources for smaller federations that don't have full departments like us. We take a lot of resources from them and we... We rework the artwork that fits our community, but they, um, so they do that. They provide those kinds of things. Yeah. So 2018, you become CEO by title. Yes. It's on your business card. Yeah. What changes for you? Yeah. In fact, it was funny. I met with a rabbi in 2018. I met with a rabbi, I'm not going to name names, (laughs) who said to me, so, um, so now that you're in this role, what are they going to call you? What's your title going to be? And I was like, CEO, (laughs) like, and I, so unpack unpack that a bit. You're meeting with a rabbi now. So you have the you're in the role. I'm in the role. Part of your job is now to meet with your counterparts, constituents, whatever, and one of them is a rabbi yep. in town. Yep. There's I don't know twenty some odd, maybe more. A lot of them. A lot of rabbis in town, and in one of these meetings, this one might remember, but he probably would never w- remember. In, that one, in one of these meetings, this person is looking at you, knowing that he's meeting now with the quote unquote head of the federation. And he's asking, what is your title going to be? Because it can't possibly be <laughs> right. that you are the CEO. Right. Elliot was the CEO. Todd was the CEO. But well, now what what's you? yours going to be? What, do they, what are they calling you? <laughs> and I was like, CEO. What else would so they what call me? what do you make me? of that? I mean, the same thing that we've been saying. I don't think I was the typical like You're just expected a kid. CEO. You're just a kid. Yeah. I don't think that they thought. And also, listen, I think that I don't like to play this card because I don't like i don't i don't really feel at a disadvantage but sometimes it does come up that because i'm a female you know you're you're treated differently in this space um especially among the rabbis in town not all of them and mm-hmm. i shouldn't say that i have a great relationship with them and i don't but in this particular moment yeah. i felt like that was part of it um we can jump to it cuz i'm going to i want to spend some time here on this you're giving a lot of like disclaimers and a lot of, um, uh, you know, not all this and all that, but the reality is there's a reaction to you in this role, you being a female. I mean, there's video here, so someone's going to watch this on YouTube and can see you. But for the listeners, like, can you describe your physical stature? Yes, I'm five feet on a good day. I wear heels <laughs> so that I appear taller um, and I'm female. <laughs> so... <laughs> You and I were at a summit in Austin. And you uh, heard this interaction, so this is, yeah, right? So I'm, and I'm okay. giving a firsthand okay. testimony. Okay. okay, good. Because sometimes I say it and people don't believe me, but you actually First hand testimony. Okay. My wife, Danielle, was there. A lot of people from Las Vegas were at this summit. Yes. Uh, but so you were there 
both as a participant and attendee of the summit like we were, but also in a work capacity. Right. A lot of people there that you're meeting with, I think, you're, did you speak on a plenary that, at that one or no? No, no, no. no not no. that one. No. But you're, you're there in a work capacity as well. Yes. And so in between the sessions uh, at the bar, we would hang out a lot in this three, four day summit. And I saw it firsthand where you would introduce yourself. My name is Stephanie. I'm the CEO of the Jewish Nevada, Jewish Federation of, of Las Vegas. And they would, they would, the, it became a joke. The response was, you're the CEO. And it was, it was not once it was again and again. And you had a meeting with someone and they said it and you came back. You're like, this is just, and there was a, a spectrum that I saw. Um, at first you, you are met with that reaction. You wait, you're, you were the CEO and it's like, fuck you. Yes, I am the CEO. And it's, and I'm like, yeah, she, I mean, what's how, why is that so hard to grasp or why is that the reaction? And it could be the range of things we talked about that. Yes, there's a bias against female CEOs, uh, your physical stature, your age, cause you are still young and all that, but over and over. And it went from like, not anger, but not a pleasant reaction that, why can't you believe that? It's not that, that you're even new anymore in this role. You've been doing it for quite a while. You have a great reputation around it. You've got incredible results. Uh, and then it became kind of funny. I think, I don't know, maybe as you realize that you're not crazy and that other people are seeing that that people are reacting to you this way. Maybe mm -hmm. it was a validation mm -hmm. when it started to become kind of funny. Mm -hmm. And then in a way, and I hope that you are leaning into that. Like, yes, I am the CEO. And not with a spite or a chip, but like, yes, I am the CEO. And look what I can do and what I have done and what others who look like me will be able to do and are doing. I certainly don't make apologies or excuses for being in this role. I hope that I like I don't. And if I do, you should call you me. You don't, on it. and um, you shouldn't. Right, and I and I like I I actively um, I think intentionally like don't. And so when so yes, so to that point, when someone says it to me, I'm like, yes, I'm the CEO. And I do think it's kind of funny, but I also think it's insulting. And I also that's the word insulting. Yeah, and I also understand, I guess that. Maybe it's because it's a city like Vegas or it's a state like Nevada. It's a big deal. And people, I think, look at us and like because we're – I mean, this is not um, – you know, I don't want to like insult any of my other uh, any of the other communities, but I mean, we are not a small shuttle. I mean, we are like <laughs> you know, I mean, this is a big a big city and a big state, and I think that people think that comes with a big territory and a big job and all of the things, and so it's insulting. And who's but it six also foot, not five foot on a good day, right? Right. <laughs> someone who's a male, someone who's fifty five, someone who's you know, like, and I think. And so that's sort of what I chalk it up to. I don't make excuses for being in this role. I worked hard to be in this role. I work hard now. I may I may not have, I mean, I may have been in the right time and the right place in getting this role, but like I work hard to keep it. I work hard to, you know, build the federation and and to to perform on our, you know, executing our mission. But yeah, it's like it is a joke. It just happened at FedPro, where I was like around Federation colleagues. People said that to me. <laughs> what is FedPro? 
FedPro was the Federation's professional conference, which happens once a year. Um, JFNA, that parent organization, puts it on. Uh, there's a cost to attend and register your Federation professionals, but there's different tracks for each um, each professional in the organization. So there's a marketing track, there's a finance track, there's fundraising, and so uh, we send a few members from our team each year. Is there a CEO track? Yes, there actually is. And yeah. so you gave a Fed talk, like a TED talk at Fed Pro. Yeah. And you shared the video with me. Yeah. I don't know that they actually called it a Fed talk, but they well, should behind have. you was like the Fed same Pro. kind of white block letters. Yeah. F-E-D. I didn't see the pro initially. It said Fed So pro. it looked like a, like a TED talk, basically. Yeah. So yeah. I, I'm calling it a Fed talk. Yeah. Um, so talk to me about that process. You get asked to speak. Right. Did they ask you because they knew you had some kind of special subject matter expertise? Did they ask you because... So I don't know why ultimately they asked me, but I can tell you this. I have been to several Federation conferences throughout my tenure as in working in Federation, from young leaders to women's philanthropy. I've been to conferences around, like I, I went on two um, uh, overseas development conferences to Israel and to um, uh, Ukraine. Like I've been on a lot of Federation conferences and they always have the same speakers and it's and they always always target the the large federations that are raising tens of millions of dollars and so over the last few years i have been very vocal about that like our my disappointment in seeing the same people and to not have federation categorizes well jfna categorizes federations by different like groups there's large Federations, which is your like Miami, Chicago, New York, Detroit, that raise over $20 million each year. Mm -hmm. There's large intermediate, there's intermediate, and there's small. We're an intermediate federation. We're between a campaign of like three to seven million dollars, and we're among intermediate. So some of the other colleagues in that intermediate group are Nashville, um, Austin, with your buddy uh, Rabbi Septimus. Mm so, I mean, it's a group of Portland, you know, it's a large group of my colleagues, but I have been expressing this like frustration for the last few years. So I, I don't know if that had anything to do with it, but they're maybe, like, fine, you right, want right. to so complain, you, you change it. I don't know how, but I do know that um, a couple weeks before the high holidays, um, like in September, mid-September, I got a phone call from one of the talent people at JFNA who I've worked with before. Her name is Jess and said, to me, we're putting together the schedule, the plenary schedule for FedPro, and we want to in, we want to interview you to be a potential speaker at, at a plenary. So it wasn't like they were asking me to do it yet. I thought they were, and I was like, oh my God, I'm so honored. And then she said, well, I have a few questions for you first. <laughs> Pump the brakes. So, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, she's, so she said the prompt is going to be what what is one what is a leadership quality that you possess that you've carried with you through your you know through your professional experience right so being C- in my case ceo mm-hmm. there were three other speakers and ended up being that there were three other speakers but i was the only ceo so that was the question she posed to me. Do they all have the same prompt or different prompt? No, we all had the same prompt and it was leadership um, quality. Yeah, leadership quality. So so she so she asks me this question. We had this great conversation. I told her about my trajectory and how I got to where I was, you know, where I became CEO. And then she said, "Okay, we'll call you back." 
So I sent a follow-up email. Thanks so much for the time or whatever. A week went by and she sent me an email saying, we'd love to invite you to do this. So the wheels started turning um, just before Sukkot, which was September um, 29th. And I actually was leaving on a family trip um, to to the Caribbean. We were taking my kids on a cruise, my parents, my kids on a cruise. And um, when I got back, I was supposed to hit the ground running. Meet, they had paired me with a coach. And they said, this coach is going to work with you on your script, but they're going to work with you on your delivery. You're going to meet with them three or four times before the plenary happens. We're going to stage everything. There's music. There's this, the whole thing. Then Israel gets attacked on October 7th. And the prompt shifted to what is a leadership quality that you've possessed throughout this crisis? Like what, how did you show up for your team mm-hmm. and for your community? Um, and so I, like I hadn't started writing a script yet because I had just gotten back from this trip. And so it, so it shifted. And so the process was long and it was very time consuming considering everything else communities were mm-hmm. dealing with, especially us when, when Israel got attacked. But, um, but it was, it was great. It was great. I wrote the script they wordsmithed it. They helped me to identify, um, you know, really what I wanted to focus on. Um, and then lots of rehearsals. I recorded myself several times. They provided feedback. And we, it was it was good. So I want to dig into this more about just public speaking and your yeah. role in any leadership role. You are required to do public speaking, whether it be just one-on-one or small groups or in front of 10,000 people. You've done it before. You've done it plenty. I talked about your Stephanie Says segments that you record every Friday and send out by email to the community to tens of thousands of people. Did we talk about those already? No. No, I mentioned it in your intro. Oh, well, I want to. Yeah, okay. Um, But this is different, clearly. This is not like you're writing a speech and saying it a few times to yourself and then delivering it with written notes. Right. This is is prime time. This is TED Talk level. Right. So what about the process? Did you learn that, that... or takeaways for you that you didn't maybe know previously or that you would take with you going forward for any other public speaking engagements. Right. So I want to take it back because when I became the CEO, I know that the community wants to hear from the CEO. They have the highest open rate of any one of our emails because there's something different. I don't know why. (laughs) Again, this is the vulnerability in me or whatever. I don't know. But I don't know why people care about reading an email from me. I'm not sure. But they do have the highest open rate. They did when Elliot... The CEO of the Federation sends an email to the community. Yeah. Usually on Friday. Yeah. Before the Sabbath. Yeah. Okay. And those emails have the highest open rate. Well, so they they have historically, even when Elliot sent them or Todd sent them, anytime an email has gone out from our CEO, they get the highest open rate. So I knew when I became CEO, I was going to have to figure out how to communicate with the community. And I knew right away I was not going to write letters. I am not a writer. That has never been a thing for me. I have taken writing classes. I can do it. But in fact, you know, you asked me how the board invested in me when I started. I hired a ghostwriter because I was like, if I am really going to have to start communicating with our community, I need someone who is going to take my thoughts and put it down into a beautiful, I couldn't like, I didn't think I could write like Elliot or Todd. They're excellent writers. Mm -hmm. And so I did. I hired a ghostwriter for a short time and then ChatGPT came about. But anyways, um, so um, 
so I started these videos, these Stephanie Says videos, because I was like, well, I am much better when I can do spoken word. I mean, I still have to write the comments, mm-hmm. but it's really just me having a conversation with the community. I share my thoughts and feelings. And so these videos became really popular. They're sort of cheesy because I call them Stephanie Says. But um, but anyway, so this – so in doing this process for the Fed Pro, which like I think was was different because, and I don't know how many people watch my Stephanie Says videos. I mean, it goes to a lot of people, but I don't know how many people actually watch them because there's like 14,000 people in our database. There were 900 of my colleagues in this room at Fed Pro, and that was like far more intimidating because mm-hmm. they're all leaders in their own community. Um, but they, working with the coach taught me so much about developing the story in a thoughtful way that doesn't leave the viewer wanting more, right? Like you you have to present this problem. You have to dive into it. You have to wrap it up at the end with a solution and like leave the audience really mm. feeling like um, like they they have the full picture. And then I, if you if you've watched my Stephanie says, most of them is me sitting at my table um and holding a cup of coffee, a Jewish Nevada cup of coffee. And there's nothing in that coffee mug. But the reason why I do that is because I learned that when I'm standing, I sway, which is like really bad. And also I use my hands like this and I and so I sit at the table because I do better and I focus more when I'm sitting at the table. And it's but as I, if the audience, the person watching it, is sitting across from you and you guys are just having a cup of coffee. That's right. feels much more natural you know, I'm to not, me. You're not speaking like a speech to me sitting, you know, you're elevated at the podium, I'm sitting down. It's We're just across from each other. Exactly. And it feels much more natural and comfortable for me. But Fed Pro, I was going to be standing in the middle of a stage. It's like a t- it's TED Talk. That's right. That's what it was. Yeah. And so I was going to be standing in the middle of a stage. And so part of what I worked on, I think three three video takes was simply my posture, what to do with my hands, <laughs> and like what, like right? So like what, what was I going to do just standing in the middle of that stage? What did you do with your hands? So, well, I did end up using them a little bit, but mostly they were like in front of me. I didn't have pockets and I didn't, so I don't know. I mean, you know, you can practice and practice, but when you get on that stage, so... Mm-hmm. Some of it goes out the window. Well, you did very well. Thank you. It was very good. Thank you. Um, you mentioned October 7th. Mm-hmm. This is when Israel gets attacked by Hamas. They went into neighborhoods. They went into a music festival. They took 240-some-odd hostages. They killed 1,400 people. Now, you and at your core and your staff are fundraisers. And Every day you wake up, you go to work in this community, like you said, to assess the needs and match resources with those needs. And yet this thing happens 3,000 some odd miles away. As a Jewish professional, how does your life change when something like that happens? I mean, in that moment, I we woke up and I was in the Bahamas because I said I was on a cruise and we docked in the Bahamas and I turned to John and said, my vacation's over. Like, I knew right away that no matter what plan I put in place for my team while I was away so that perhaps I could have the opportunity to disconnect a bit, that was out the window. Like, when Israel goes to war at any time, I mean, and we have been here before, and I did not recognize in that moment, and I'm not sure anybody did, but when I saw the news headline that morning, I don't think anybody recognized the magnitude of what Mm. we were dealing with. And so in my mind, I thought, okay, Israel got bombed again, or there was a rocket, or there was a something, and we are we're at, we're at war, and 
and uh, and and it's crisis mode. And then so anytime this has happened before, we immediately open an emergency fund because we know that there are donors in our community, there are people in our community that will no will 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 no doubt give to Israel to support Israel to want to be able to do something. And so for us, that's you know that's 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 an immediate need is, is we want to um, raise dollars and direct those funds to Israel to take care of, of whatever they need right now. But then as the situation started to unfold, like I realized that not only did I have an obligation to provide for the community, uh, well, to provide for Israel and raise dollars, but there was this obligation to provide for the community and to support what's happening here because people were just reeling out of control as like more news came out of what was happening here like or or what happened there uh there were um it was just a lot and then also my team like i needed to make sure they were okay we were drinking from a fire hose and so I was in the Bahamas and I thought, okay, the first thing we did was open this emergency fund. But then it was like, when, how quickly can we bring the community together for a gathering and to talk about, you know, what has happened or to hear from, you know, our um, our elected officials or whatnot. So we, I mean, we just spun into action and, and everything changed. I mean, it is so hard to be a Jewish communal professional on a normal day. And then when something like that happens, it's just... Well, there's layers. I was an outsider That's, looking in and yeah. I'm observing. So you and all of your team and other organizations too, other professionals yes. and, and Jewish organizations, they have their body of work that they have to do on a day-to-day basis, on any given day. And like you said, it's not easy. Now add to that, there's a response to this. The response comes in a couple forms, what you talked about. For you, you guys open a fund because people like me and the community, we want to do something. What can we do? And your job is to tell us, here's one thing you can do. There's right. probably a lot of things you can do, but under your umbrella as a fundraising organization, if you want to donate and have the funds and know that the funds are going right. where, they, where they're needed, right. this is an avenue and that's your core avenue. Right. There's also response as individuals. Now take your professional hat off, you and all your team. Uh, we all got attacked. We all got attacked. And like you said, we've been here before, but it was very quick when the realization was this is not just another skirmish or rockets fire. This is right. something more and different. Right. And then you feel as an individual, all your team is feeling, you start to feel and process what that, you know, the gravity of that, the mourning of that, the anger of that, the how did this happen? How could this happen? The what do you mean the hostage? How many hostages? Right. From this many to that many to ultimately what we know is over 240. Right. Then came another wave of response that totally caught me off guard, which is in the U.S., well, the, anti, the anti-Semitism. Yeah. yeah. And now it's like, wait a minute. This is Hamas and Israel, but now you want me to die because I'm Jewish? And here in Summerlin, spray painted on a wall on a, in a very nice neighborhood. It's not like this is in some faraway place. This is, I mean, I run around these neighborhoods, death to Jews. Mm. And so now as a Jewish professional, you don't just get to feel like what I'm feeling, which is, um, you know, me processing that as an individual, you have to process that as an individual. And then layered on top of that is the Jewish professional response, which is for the entire community. And it's probably, I'm guessing amplified. 
Yeah. Well, I didn't even touch on that piece because I, yeah, just, I didn't, but it's, it's like after something like this happens, it's not business as usual for us. Right. And so you completely have to pivot your, your, I mean, just all of your programming, your language, your marketing, your, I mean, just everything you're putting out to the community. So that's one layer of it. But then it, Yes, to your point, it became quickly apparent that we were not just dealing with a situation in Israel. We are not just dealing with a situation in Israel and between Israel and Hamas and supporting them from afar. And I can reflect on, you know, the the war that happened in 2021, right? We were in, we were here before. But that, again, didn't even um, amplify anti-Semitism in the way that we're experiencing it right now. Um, and so we are now like, it's like a fight for the survival of the Jewish people. And so before we sat down, you were telling me you were at UNLV as a Jewish professional. Can yeah. you talk about what, what did you do there? And- yeah. So, I mean, I, and here's the thing I struggle with too as a, as a, as a federation, as a professional, like I think it, me personally, I struggle with this. I rely on my colleagues a lot to find out what, what is our space? What are we supposed to be doing here? I mean, I, there are, as you alluded to, there are organizations in town that are doing this work or doing similar work. And what is our role as a federation? And so, you know, I, I rely a lot on the agencies in our community that, that have very specific focuses around anti-Semitism and, um, you know, Israeli American engagement and things like like that and part of what I talked about in my Fed talk is about my leadership style in terms of collaborating um, with other community organizations as a way to pull from each other, to pull resources from each other. And but now I think we're in such a battle that it's not just one person's job to fight anti-Semitism or to worry about you know about that. And it's got we've got to approach it from all different all different angles. So um, I say that, and then coming back to what to what you were saying. Um, about UNLV, we oversee Hillel, which is also different than a lot of other communities. Our federation is a fully functional federation. We oversee the Hillel, not only our JCC, but the Hillel at both UNLV and UNR. And Hillel is? Hillel is. uh, No, that's great. It's a... um, it's the organization on campus that oversees uh, Jewish students, right? So they they um, and we have a director, um, and they encourage they bring the students together for engagement and programming and connection. But they also encourage the students to similar to the BBYO model, but to really mm-hmm. be responsible for creating their own programming and their own footprint on campus. Um, and so uh, the students have been feeling uneasy and unsettled since this uh, war broke out and um, they've been experiencing anti-Semitism on campus. And I I was just saying to Michael before we started that I think we somewhat live in a bubble in Nevada because we don't experience quite the levels of anti-Semitism that other college campuses do, thankfully, but it's still there and it's it's still definitely concerning to our students and to us. So the students actually organized a meeting with President Whitfield today and members of the faculty. And I went just to be supportive of them. And for the first time ever, I didn't say anything, (laughs) which is so not like me, (laughs) which is so not like me, but they were extremely prepared. I mean, they had talking points and they were very well-spoken and poised and just shared incidents and facts and concerns for their safety and disrupting their class life and their study. I mean, it was really excellent. And the president was very receptive. Let's touch on that. Cause I, I'm at the point now where, I feel like I'm in a dream and I'm screaming and no sound is coming out. Right. And it's when we say this anti-Semitism, I experienced anti-Semitism. They're experiencing anti-Semitism. 
What does that actually mean? What is a, an example that a student gave? Don't say the like they experienced anti-Semitism. Say what was the incident that occurred? Yeah, there were a couple that they drew upon. One was vandalism to a car, swastikas, you know. So I'm a student at UNLV. I walk up to my car. There's a swastika spray painted on it. Yeah. Yeah, totally vandalized. And so my car is being um, vandalized just for the because I'm Jewish. Yeah. And the symbol obviously is a hate symbol. Yeah. Yeah. And um, you know, we've done um So that'd be the equivalent of an African American kid walking up to their car and the N word is spray painted on their car. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And um, you know, we've done peaceful, they've done the Hillel students have have organized peaceful rallies on campus and and different types of things and um, and people have walked by and spit on them or yelled um, anti-Semitic remarks. I don't. I don't think it's anything as bad as what we saw spray painted like "Death to mm. Jews," but it's you know these these um, these very uh, public this very public rhetoric of like um, from the river to the sea, which is essentially a call for the elimination of the the mm. state of Israel and Jewish people. Um, and so, so that that okay, that one like. I'm not saying it's okay. I think a lot of people who actually say that are just caught up in a catchy chant and have no idea what the hell it actually means. Yeah, well, the the walking across someone and spitting on them, you know what you're doing. Totally. And what makes that okay? Right. That's so, the part where I'm, again, I feel like I'm in a dream and I'm screaming and no sound is coming out. Right. And so, and they, that's what anti-Semitism. When people say that's what it that's what it is. Imagine right. or the just, Nazis were right. The Nazis did it right. Hitler should have finished the job. I mean, just yeah. I mean, and so that's like to say the KKK yes. is right and should have finished off yes. all the African Americans in America. Yes, right, right, and. You know, the university, like most places, they try to fall back on this freedom of speech type of thing, where, right? Like, and I can't, I'm not an expert I, by any means, but they try to fall back on this, like, well, we have freedom of speech. And, and even today, President Whitfield said, and he was extremely supportive, but he said today, we're, we struggle because we're this urban university with no, mm-hmm. no boundaries, no barriers. We're in the middle of a city and anybody is welcome to use our university and come onto our university. And we have a freedom of speech. We used to block it to one corridor. Now it's really just wherever it is. But the difference and what the students raise to them today is when these, when these, Protests become violent, which I think spitting on someone can, you know, or this language is now inciting violence, right? So that is not free speech anymore. Would the president be okay with someone under the guise of free speech standing on campus saying the N word and things things like that? Yeah, I mean, I don't want to speak for him, but they're correct. Yeah. Not to put words in in anybody's mouth, but there's this thing where it's when it's Jewish stuff, it's okay. If it's the N-word, it's not okay. And to me, that's where... Well, I mean... It's either people don't know, like back to the river to the sea thing, or, you know, Hitler was right, maybe as a throwaway line, which is also not okay. It's just as bad as saying the N-word, which everyone, I believe, knows is not okay. Right. And would not be protected by anybody under free speech. Right on a college campus because it's hate speech. At some point it crosses over from saying what you want to say to you're saying something specifically because you hate and you're trying to incite something. Right. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I, you know, it was interesting because they, um, 
the students, we used the word anti-Semitism today in the lot, a lot in the meeting, and that was pretty much the concern. And at one point, Jolie Brislin, who is the regional director for ADL, turned to me and said, did you hear them say anti-Semitism at all? And I was like, no. Them, and so them being the, the, faculty. the faculty. And so Jolie at the end said, you know, it's really important that you actually say the words that you condemn anti-Semitism. Mm-hmm. And so they did. Um, and so they are supposed to be releasing a statement on Monday morning that that speaks to that. I think it was eye-opening for them. I think the students did a phenomenal job of of talking about their concerns and and that, you know, they're they're not feeling safe on campus and it's disrupting their classroom and, and their study time. So I think they did a good job. And I, I'm hopeful for the university. I know I know that President Whitfield was meeting with Governor Sandoval today or former Governor Sandoval, but now the president at UNR. And they're going to come to a... Yeah, I guess a, that's what you just talk, talked about there is like that intricate balance. Well, it's free speech, so it's okay. Right. But when you say those words, we condemn this, it makes it not okay. That's right. And you sometimes to... it really is just that simple. Because if people are saying this, it starts with one or two, and then nobody says, hey, this isn't okay. Then it's four and 10, and nobody's saying, guys, this is not okay. All right. of a sudden, it's a mob of people and someone's getting lynched. Right. And that sounds like maybe I'm exaggerating, but that's literally how it happens. Right. So you did you were you at the, um, the community gather, gathering on October 9th? At Temple Bechelon? Yeah. Yes, I was there. So you were there. So it was so important that right out of the gate, we had Governor Lombardo there and Sheriff McMahill and Senator Rosen denouncing Hamas and and actually saying, right, like that they stand with Israel. Mm-hmm. Like these, you know, th- that makes a huge difference. That language, right, that those words make a big difference. Yep, not just showing up for our community, not just being there, but but actually saying that made a huge difference. And I know a little bit about Sheriff McMahill and his background in terrorism worldwide. And he was very clear about Hamas and who they are and what they're about. Right. And so, I mean, Lombardo is right there with him. Right. Right. Both of them coming from um, McMahill, still the sheriff in in police force and Lombardo coming from that world. Right. So let's let's switch a little bit here. Let's go back to your earlier life in uh, your Jewish nonprofit work. Where you you and I were on the rooftop rooftop of a venue here that just opened, and you said to me, "Look, we are restarting the Jewish Nevada Men's Division, and I want you to put your name on it." Something to that effect. How do you remember that conversation it's on the rooftop? So, I don't remember it at all. I barely remember what I ate for breakfast yesterday. I love when you tell that story because I'm like, wow, it makes me sound so good, but I don't remember it. I do remember that you and I started that endeavor years ago, and then I moved, things changed, leadership changed, and there was no doubt in my mind that if we were going to get this going again, you were going to be the guy who was going to help me do that. Um, and I know that you don't like leadership roles or titles or things like that. And I, and I'm going to elaborate um, on that. It's not that yeah. I don't like them, but I th- uh, keep, keep going. And I'm going to talk about titleship versus leadership. Yes. Okay. We can talk about that. I, but I knew that like that you were the person I wanted to do that with. I mean, you had a vision and we were not done with the work we were, we were, we had started on. So this, um, you talked about affinity groups earlier, and yep. it's really about community building yes. through finding commonalities, either if you're the group of doctors or lawyers or women's philanthropy. Right. This was for what we call the men's division, and we were very um, intentional about defining what that is. And these are professional men. We kind of 
picked an age range, but we were loose about it because, uh, you know, too young and you start getting into young leadership, which was, it was okay at a certain age. And then too old, first of all, you know, if you're 60 and 70, you don't necessarily want to come to a social gathering at the, at the latest, you know, restaurant that opened up. Uh, and at the same time, if you're, you know, twenties, thirties, you don't want to hang out with a bunch of people that are not your demographic. Right. So we wanted to find that sweet spot. And the first one, you said, look, just put your name on it. We're going to take care of everything. And it was uh, steak and, and whiskey tasting at the Capitol Grill. We had a private room. Right. And we had the brand ambassador from McAllen come. Yep. And Drew Weintraub, who was at the time the managing partner of Capitol Grill, gave us all a kitchen tour. And we got to go in the back in the refrigerators and see how they age the steaks. And that's all very interesting. To you. To me. <laughs> Well, steak and whiskey is interesting. When you talk about this core, you know, this demographic to pretty much anyone who says, yes, I want to go to that because that sounds interesting. Right. The other things that that does is there's like a status and stature that comes into that, meaning I'm the kind of person that goes to these. Um, those are the kinds of people that I want to be around. You know, people like us do things like this. Uh, but there's also a, a commonality. Anybody who says yes to something from the Federation, which is a philanthropic organization, has some kind of values. Otherwise, they wouldn't say yes, or they're just saying yes. Maybe they have those ha- those values inherently, but they're not as conscious. But they're saying yes because someone who has similar values says, "I'm going to go to this thing. You should come with me." Right. And that's how these things really start, and then take form, and then ultimately flourish. So at first, I was just yeah, put my name on it. Great, I'll show up. I'll tell a few people that I'm going, and and you guys did literally all the work. I just showed up. I maybe I don't even know if I said anything in the opening remarks. You did. I might have yeah, you did. at that first one. Yeah. But that was it. It was a very easy yes thing for me to say and do. Right. And then it was like, all right, something hooked me in there. I think I know what that something is. But it was you know, you mentioned that your work is hard. And in your world you do outreach, quote unquote outreach. And outreach from these organizations being a lifelong participant in this looks and feels a certain way. Even using the word outreach to me was a signal that was like, that's the old way to do things. If we're going to do this, we've got to reimagine it. We're not calling it outreach anymore. I'm not the chair of this. That's where the unofficial part came up. Right. And we really took this approach that, you know, when me and my buddies get together, there's not an email graphic that's created, like an invitation that says, we're having an event and this is where you're going and what it costs. It's an email or a text, and it might be like, excuse my language here, but it might be something like, hey, motherfuckers, right. Drew's got this room at Capitol Grill. We're going to get the brand ambassador from McAllen. We're going to have steak, drink whiskey, show up, probably, you know, idiot or something like that we'd say right. to each other. Um, cost is going to be this. Everyone, everyone chips in. 50 bucks is going to be great. If you don't come, you suck. That's how we communicate with each other. Now, we didn't take that much liberty, but we really took a different approach in that the emails were not these posters, yep. graphic posters. Yep. It was a conversational email yep. that one guy would send to another. And I don't know how many events we've had at this point now. We started this in, when was the Capitol Grill? 2017. 2017. It's 20, now 2023. We've had So that's six years worth year. of events for those 20 over, call it 30 events. Yeah. And again, the whole point of this thing at the end of the day is that you are a philanthropic organization and your job is to fundraise so that you can take the money and give it to 
or allocate it to where there are needs. Yes. And that's the approach. It's yes. not a social club at the end of the day. It's not a networking group, although nope. both of those things are byproducts. Totally. And I don't know how much money we can accredit back to the men's division at this point, but it's not insignificant anymore. Well, you know, it's funny because when we first approached this, you were very adamant about adamant. we're not fundraising. We're not. We are not fundraising. And we didn't. But then ultimately I said to you, Haim, this is like, you know, we are not – we have to somehow – get these guys to now step up. But there are two layers there, and you always remind me of this. There are the guys who just want to connect with other Jews in the community and and be a part of our work, and that's totally fine. We welcome them all the same. And there's an event in particular for those men who are making a commitment of $1,800 or more to the annual campaign, and that one so is that's for a given, them. that's a given that, level that you guys have level. defined. We've called it a, the, the Solomon Society, and we've said that men – who give at that level are a part of this society. And some of them come and some of them don't. And we welcome people all year round at these men's events that either are at that level or not. And it's okay. That's okay too. And so I spent a good five, six years working on this as the unofficial chair. Yep. And I promise we'll get back to leadership and titleship and why I insist on that. I insisted on that term. But um, I say, as I think back on that conversation, I say that you activated me. So again, people have values. And actually, Mike Saltman, who was a previous guest, previous episode, talked about this also. You know, he is at the pinnacle of success in his field of commercial real estate development. He's tra- literally traveled mm-hmm. the world. He's had all sorts of ventures. And he said he's always given back. He's always found time to give back. Mm-hmm. One takeaway, I'm going to sort of divert here for a second. So Elliot Karp, who we've talked about, who is the CEO before you and, and in a way activated you. Mm-hmm. Um, I interacted with him when I was, you know, I, I grew up here, went to UNLV. I left for a year as a consultant for my fraternity. I came back. I was BBYO city director yeah. and then um, worked in first construction with my dad and now in, and then in real estate. And I don't remember who or how or what, but Elliot had a conversation and said, okay, this is your path for engagement. I think I was the Hillel chair because of my familiarity with the dynamics of a college campus because of my fraternal work. Mm -hmm. And then that put me on the board of the Federation. And at one of these discussions, Elliot said to me, there's three things you can give. Now I'm a young professional. I don't have, (coughs) you know, forget $1,800 a year. I barely had 180 a year to give. But he said, there are three things you can give or anybody can give under the umbrella of philanthropy. It's your time, your talent, and your treasure. And so the treasure one is obvious. Please give a donation of X. The time and talent isn't as obvious. And it's also hard. Like, how do you distinguish between time and talent? Because one is the other in a way. Time is all of them, but one is the other. But I got to spend five, six good years in this unofficial capacity as Jewish Nevada men's division chair creating something alongside you and then Megan and then Andrew, your, your team for the Jewish community, for people like me, to to activate them. And it was a real gift that you gave me when I look back on all that, to not just um, give treasure, but also time and talent, dare I say. But there, there I say, what do you make of that? <laughs> so I, I totally, well, there's a lot there. I told, first of all, I, I totally agree with him. And it's still sort of, um, you could say the three, the three, T's, the three W's. What are the three um, W's? Wealth. Wealth, <laughs> wisdom, and 
Oh my God, I shouldn't have said that because now I can't remember what the third one is. That's right. It's something that's equivalent to time, wealth, wisdom, and um, oh God, I can't remember. Anyways, okay, it'll come to me as we're talking. Um, so I still totally agree with that. I tell, I I absolutely do, and the, and and I have never. That's why I've never pushed you, even though I've wanted to. And people keep saying something to me about you serving on our board again because I know that we are going to get way more out of you in an unofficial sort of capacity than an official Isn't that capacity. I love it, wow. and I think it's great. And I think there are different kinds. It's actually you have given me that takeaway because mm-hmm. now when I am looking for good leadership or board members, and in even when we find a good leader, it does not mean they have to be a board member and I have said that to members of our board that like that is not that does not mean that's the right place for them so I do appreciate that but it, you know the treasure part has to come at some point it just does and I don't you know we can't do our work without it but um, but they are all equally as important I'll just leave the, it at the that. treasure so when, it, when we were starting this men's division thing and we were dueling back and forth about do we fundraise do we not right to me, it was always the there was at the time this uh, sentiment about the federation that it's you, you start with your handout, like give us money, give us money, and totally. The dance was build a community first, show them what you do, yep. the money will come. Yep. And I am now also back in the camp of you guys exist for a reason. You shouldn't apologize for it, and it should be, you know, written on your forehead. We're here to fundraise, so. Participate to the level you want. We already talked. I mean, you kind of illustrated. There's so many ways to engage, but at the end of the day, you guys are here to fundraise to help other people. It's not like you're fundraising for your own right. Your own pocketbook. Don't make excuses for it. But you have activated me in that way. And and part of what I've taken away is that you know people give to people. And there is a sense that you have to build relationship first before you you go in for the ask. So we have made more of a conscious effort of that. But there are still going to be people. There are to this day in our community that um, that think Federation asks a lot. And we do. And it goes back to what I said at the beginning because Jews take care of Jews. And on October 20th, we had our Women's Philanthropy United Luncheon, which is our biggest attended luncheon um, of the year. And every year, somebody gives the pitch, and it's like such a big deal about who we ask to give the pitch. And it's always a lay leader because I feel that the women in that room need to hear from one of their peers about Mm -hmm. why they're giving to Federation and not from me about why they should give to Federation. Um, And this year, because, you know, we were dealing with a very different time. I said to Megan, I feel like I want to give the pitch at the luncheon. And I don't know if you heard any feedback because your wife was there, but I, I shared with the room exactly that. Like, yes, we ask for a lot. We know we ask for a lot. And this is why. And I talked about Israel and I talked about our support for the community. And I talked about how Jews take care of Jews. And, um, and I got two new $100,000 gifts that day. That's a big deal. It was a very successful pitch. <laughs> <laughs> people give to people. Titleship leadership. So I went to UNLV. I've, I was involved in BBYO, which is, in addition to being a youth group, it's also very leadership forward. I was yep. involved in my fraternity. I had leadership positions there. I ended up working for my fraternity, and I was in the headquarter office in Indianapolis the summer before we like dispatch and go visit college campuses. And this concept came to me then. And I remember I wrote a little blurb about it. And my boss at the time, Andy Boran, said he saw it and he goes, I want you to elaborate on this. I never really did. But 
and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come back and ask you about when you became CEO by title and when did you become CEO by identity? Mm. But it doesn't necessarily, I learned this at a young age and I believe this. I don't have to be the chair of anything to uh, affect positive change or influence. And that to me is, is the difference. And specifically with the men's division, like when, when, I, when, when the guys get together, no one is chair. There's no title. There's no formality to it. You know who the leader is for whatever it is. And sometimes, by the way, it changes. I'm sure in your friends group, there's like the party planner that dials out the itinerary. There's the one that makes sure that the bar is stocked with all the good mm -hmm. stuff or the charcuterie board, per se. No one says you're the this, you're the that, you're the that. It just kind right. of it just kind of happens. Right. So in the spirit of what we were doing there, I, I was that whole concept was recalled and it became a thing. Like I'm the unofficial, I'm the unofficial. The other thing that we broke in a way is you don't have to have board meetings or committee meetings to get things done. And a lot of it was we did at the end of it, but it wasn't like every month we have a committee meeting no, for the sake right. of having a meeting. We had one when we all needed to get together and really put our thoughts to paper and a plan. Right. And then we just went and executed. And right. a lot of it was simple emails or simple texts, group text, and so much got done that way. So that was the titleship leadership. So yeah. in 2018, you received the title of CEO and you had to work with an executive, not had to, you got to work with an executive coach. Right. When did you start to identify... <laughs> Why are you laughing? Because I don't think I have. I really don't think I have. I'm like, I, I, I don't. I, I'm gonna keep going. It's good. Oh, this. <laughs> Listen, I think part. What the hell does a CEO do? I don't know. <laughs> um. Oh God, it's so funny when um, <laughs> when I when I started the process of this. Fed talk that we were talking about. Um, my coach said to me, "Okay, let's talk about what you want to talk about. Let's start to like map out your speech or your, your script." And he said, "What what is the leadership quality that you think you possess?" And I said, "I don't know. Ask my team." And he goes, "Whoa, wait a minute! Right there, that's a leadership quality. Like you want, like you want to ask your team what they think of." And mm -hmm. I said, "Yeah, like I don't, I don't want to say something." And he goes, "Why?" And I go, "I don't want to say something that they don't think is true of me. Like I don't." Like, I might think I possess this quality, but what if they don't think I possess it? I don't know. I I just don't feel like a CEO. I know what it means. I know what my responsibilities are, but I don't – and I don't take it lightly by any means. I don't – I mean, but I don't – I don't know. I don't feel like I'm a CEO. It's, what do you feel like? Like I'm – like a girl trying to do good for the community. <laughs> I am just a professional. Sometimes I, um, you know, I mean, I have a big responsibility of taking care of our team, um, really, you know, um, trying to keep them focused and engaged in the mission, moving us forward and raising money for the community and, you know, the partnerships and the stakeholders and all of the things that I'm responsible for. I, I totally understand it, but I don't, um, I don't know. I don't feel... I don't know. I don't feel like I'm a CEO. Isn't that interesting? I don't That's know. That's so interesting. Is it? Isn't it? I guess. I don't know. Yeah, there's a theme. There's so many themes that like keep coming up as you talk. One of them is self-awareness. You're yeah. clearly self-aware. Yeah. It's funny, like in that question, it's like, oh, I don't know what my leadership trait is, but you know that you are not a visionary. You know that you are, what did you say here? Can't even I don't know, but there's there there's clearly self awareness. Like even your TED talk, 
Fed talk about you're anxious. I mean, yes. the whole preamble was how anxious you are. And yes. The other side to that, the wrap up in that, here's a takeaway. Yes. When crafting a speech, start with the problem, elaborate on the problem, and then wrap it up. Your problem is that you're anxious. You have this problem. You elaborated through your experiences. You talked about uh, October 7th and what happened. And ultimately, the wrap up was that your team said that you were calm yeah. throughout this. You were calm for them because, hey, that's what a CEO does when their people need them to. Um, but you're clearly you're clearly self-aware and it's such, I don't know if it's irony or what it is, but like, I don't feel like a CEO. Oh it's not a bad thing. It's just, it just is. You know, the other one is that you're underestimated. I've always like had this, I don't know, this is not a therapy session, but I've always had this like feeling of like, like I have to call myself out on something before someone else does type of thing. And I don't know if that's like a how, how do you mean? meaning like like I point out my negatives so that nobody else points out my negatives. Like mm. I'm the person who will recognize I'm loud and sometimes obnoxious and sometimes I say things that are a little off color and cuz I don't want someone else to say that about me. So I'm I'm my own worst critic to some degree mm -hmm. and um And what about the underestimated? Am I underestimated by other people or am I underestimating myself both. or both? Yeah. Well, the, the the first part about underestimating myself is because I, like, I don't want to overestimate myself, right? I want to surprise people, I guess, mm -hmm. a little bit. The <laughs> 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 um, underestimated by other people, I don't know. I've definitely developed more confidence in this role over five years, for sure. Like, I, for sure. Like, I used to hide from certain things and certain responsibilities, or I'd go, no, no, don't ask me to do that. Ask Jolie, or ask, you know, like, there's another professional colleague in our community who can do that. And now I've I've grown a lot more confident in uh, putting myself front and center so that our federation can be front and center. Cool. Let's kind of wrap with this concept of philanthropy because that's what you do. Mm -hmm. um, you're on one side of philanthropy, which is asking. The other side is giving, mm -hmm. which is where most of the community is or most of the people listening to this. And actually, you're on both sides, I imagine, because you give just as much as you ask. Maybe not just as much, but certainly I know that you give as well. You walk the walk. The walk. Yeah. What? Is is philanthropy a value? Is it an action? Is it a thing that you kind of do to make yourself feel good? What? How do you think about philanthropy? Personally or as an organization? Well, you got to start personally first. Yeah. So for me, um, personally, it's a responsibility. It's an obligation. It's a priority. And yes, it comes from values, right? Like we're taught um, in the Jewish faith about tzedakah and tikkun olam and taking care of those in need. You got um, to explain now. What is tzedakah? Tzedakah is charity and giving back. And um, tikkun olam is taking care of the world, or li literally repairing the world. And so we're taught those kinds of Jewish values. And so philanthropy and, and that sort of thing comes from values, but it's also a responsibility and obligation, mm -hmm. you know, all of that. And for work, it's professionally same right it's a it's a responsibility it's an obligation um but i always and it's not 
you know, it's not easy, right? Like we said that. It's not easy to to be a professional. It's also not easy to ask. But I, I said in those October 20th comments at United that it's one of the easiest things I do in my job is to ask somebody else to contribute to the Federation, to give us money. Because I'm not asking for myself. I'm asking on behalf of the Jewish people. And I'm asking for you to consider as one Jew helping another Jew. And, um, and so it really is the easiest ask. And I think the reason that... You know, I mean, and I and I sometimes I get a little frustrated personally and professionally too. But personally, when my friends, my family, they don't support these organizations, this community, in the same way that I do, and you can't, you know, it's hard. I have to like sometimes remove my emotion from it. Um, but there are people that I want them to feel the same passionate way that I do about supporting Jewish life here. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if that answered your question. Yeah. At all, so zooming but. out on philanthropy, like you're, you have a very specific corner of that, right? Which is Jewish causes, right? There's all sorts of philanthropic causes from, right? You know, animals to kids with cancer to you name it. Uh, you know, Three Square locally, which gives, collects and gives food to people who right. li- literally don't have food in our community. Um, but in you know, you you've got your very specific brand of it, and you're you're doing the work. The professional work of asking, and again, Three Square has their equivalent of Stephanie's and Megan's and, and Andrews and, and so on. But when someone sits down, a professional asker sits down with a potential donor, what's actually happening? I mean, you're connecting with the person. People give to people. For me, it's a conversation about their likes, their interests, their struggles, their family, you know, all of those things. And it's connecting with them as a person. And then ultimately, I mean, we don't have, I I would say, I mean, this is a whole other podcast, but I would say one of the challenges we have is really telling our story, which you've Mm -hmm. helped us to dive into. And that's because the Federation's work, as we've talked about, is so vast, right? We do so much. Um, And it's not always known to the community or to the person I'm sitting down with. And so... Um, so for me, it's it's a connection, a people-to-people connection, but then I hone in on what makes that person tick and 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 really focus on where the Federation can – the Federation's mm. mission and values can align with the individual's mission yeah. and values. So in the work that we've got, done together, not just on the men's division, you allowed me to work with you and your team on some marketing stuff. And yeah. I draw a lot from a guy named Seth Godin who is a prolific marketer. Right. You know, one of the things he talks a lot about is not his specifically, it's his friends, a guy named Zig Ziglar, who was, you know, before the Tony Robbins era, he was like the personal development guy. If anyone's listening, do yourself a favor and go Google Zig Ziglar and watch some YouTubes of him because not only is the material amazing, the way that he delivers it is even more. Right. But one of the things Zig says is be a meaningful, specific, not a wandering generality. And so the Nevada Childhood Cancer Foundation is as specific as you can get. This is kids with cancer in Nevada. Right. That's a meaningful specific. Jewish Federation, you know, the the common cause is Jewish, but when someone gives you money, it can go to a, a spectrum of causes from like where does it 
you know, from day school scholars, Jewish education to Jewish overnight camps to support of Israel to, you know, uh, senior services, Holocaust survivors. I mean, you, yeah, you name it. We food, touch it. And Jewish, Jewish family yes, services. Yes, emergency services, food insecurity. I mean, all of those things. Loans. Yes. You guys get into loans. like interest-free loans for yes. people that need them. Babies, everything from and babies And so that's to where it becomes a wandering, a so to speak, wandering generality. Right. But at the same time, it's when you, I, I get what you're saying now. When you sit down with somebody, it's okay, what are you passionate about because believe me, I've got a place for your dollars. The other thing that Seth Godin really made me aware of in his book, This Is Marketing, there's like a little tiny paragraph in an obscure chapter that talks about when the fundraiser sits down with the donor. I'm remembering it as best as I can, but it's something to the effect of when the fundraiser sits down with the donor asking her for a million dollars, that might seem absurd to the fundraiser because they don't have a million dollars. They can't even fathom how much money that is and how could somebody possibly give a million dollars. But to a donor that does have that kind of capacity, it's not an ask for a million dollars. It's it's really an invitation. How does he say it? It's really the the fundraiser is offering a gift to the donor because if the donor says yes, the value that they're going to get back is worth measurably more than that million dollars. Now they have, that's the material measurement. They have it to give. Right. But when they say yes to giving, then they're engaging in philanthropy. No one's ever felt bad probably about giving money to philanthropy. In fact, you always feel pretty good, whatever the range is, if it's 20 bucks to somebody on the street, or if it's a hundred thousand dollars at your latest luncheon, it's a feeling that you're getting back because you're able to give and therefore you're, and you're giving. And so you're helping someone. And that was pretty eye-opening to me. Yeah. It's not, I have to feel uncomfortable asking you. I'm going to ask. No, you're You decide if you're going to say yes. If you say yes, what I'm really doing is I'm not asking you for anything. I'm inviting you. Yes. And I'm giving you actually a gift. Right. Yeah. I think that's so fascinating. It is. It is. And I think as a, as a fundraiser, as a philanthropy professional, you have to have that, that mindset in order to be successful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've got an ending question before I ask is there anything else you want to add no talked about a lot. <laughs> it does go very fast all right i have a two-part ending question okay we'll start with the philanthropy thing because did you talk what... to my team by the way a little bit oh <laughs> yeah I'm curious what they said okay i'm not going to tell you what they said okay <laughs> it's woven into what i was asking you oh okay don't worry about it okay um, so we're talking about philanthropy. What advice would you give people about giving and philanthropy? Um, oh, my goodness. Okay. What's the second part? Do I have to answer that first? What advice would you give somebody about becoming CEO? Oh, okay. I thought maybe they could do one <laughs> and the other would struggle the other. Um, what advice would I give somebody about philanthropy and giving? Ugh, I'm going to think about this later and kick myself for the answer, I'm sure, because hindsight is always 2020. But um, I would say to do it. I would say that I think I hear too often that, oh, I can't afford that, or, oh, I can't make that work, or, oh, that's not that level, you know, like, I can't reach that level. But I I think that if we set a level of $365 and that doesn't feel right to you or feel good to you, that I would love for more people to come back and go, but I'll give you 180 or I'll give you 200 Like, do it. Do it at whatever level feels comfortable to you. 
do it. It feels good to give. It feels good to help other people. And for someone like you and I grew up with, you talked about tzedakah, charity, like throughout Hebrew school, throughout the youth groups, there was always these little boxes called tzedakah boxes, and it was coins. Mm-hmm. And it was like mm-hmm. what you're talking about. You yep. give what you can, but That's right. the premise is that you give. Yes. You always give. Yes. We have like a default. What about someone who didn't grow up with that? I mean, the advice is the same. I think, you know, to your point, far too often, I'm not, I'm not given the opportunity for the conversation, right? So, like, to your point about the organization that is very, like, that whose, whose name very clearly describes what they do, we are not that agency or organization. And so sometimes at first ask, the answer is no. But I'm not given an opportunity to have a conversation or to open the door for conversation so that the person can ask me questions about the agency and find out more and allow me the opportunity to invite you to join us um, in that. And so I don't know how to really answer your question, but I but I want to encourage more people to ask questions about giving and about the organization and to um, find a, a common a commonality there, a common yeah. ground. And for anyone listening that the Jewish Federation is not their thing, I would just add, find your thing, give if it's not money or if it's not the amount of money that you're being asked, some amount. And if it's not money, it could be your time or your talent as well. I also... I'm, again, this could be another podcast, but I also get frustrated when someone says to me that the Federation is not their place. And not just because I'm the CEO of the mm-hmm. Federation, but I think the means in which we raise dollars, the women's luncheons, the men's event, they may not be your thing, right? Mm-hmm. Not you in particular, but in general, that might not be your thing. But I don't think that there is anybody who can argue with the work of Federation, with the the amount of 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 support that we provide to our community to sustain and build vibrant life that anyone could argue with that. You don't like the, our means of getting there, maybe, but you can't argue with what we do. I would just offer an amendment to the means part. The luncheons and the galas are the things that you might visibly see. Right. I can give you a personal testimony. That's not the only way to give or the only mechanism you know, Jared and I partnered up in business uh, pretty young age, and a federation person came to us and said, you are the most consistent givers to BBYO. Not the most dollars, but most consistent. Year over year, you too have the record of consistent givers. And it, again, it's not like an extraordinary amount of money, but it was any kid who needs a scholarship for a convention, you know, spring or fall, spring or fall convention. Right. Just come and ask for it. And we did right. all the time. So it couldn't, you know, maybe it's not the fill out the donor card at the end of the uh, the luncheon. It, there's, there was that way to give totally. that we kind of created, not really on our own, but because it was already there, but that's what we said we want to, we want to do. The other side of the coin at the end of last year, you taught me about this concept called a donor advised fund, which I thought was really cool. And I've told a couple of people about it awesome. since. Keep telling people about what it. What is that? Oh, a donor advised one is quite simply put a charitable checking account. So you, we, five hundred one c threes, some of them, some of them, um, who who operate foundations have the opportunity to hold donor advised funds. You, as the donor, deposit or donate a certain amount of money to the Jewish Federation. You receive the tax deduction in the year in which you donate those dollars, but then you can distribute them or make recommendations for their distribution over a lifetime period. So um, 
uh, the ones that Federation holds uh, or the donor advised funds that Federation holds, the donor has the benefit of depositing or donating those dollars to us and then making recommendations to any other 501c3 that aligns with the missions and values of Jewish Federation. So it does not need to be a Jewish agency or an entity in which you make a recommendation for a donation to, but it, it has to align with our values. Um, so... Um, so what, you... what I liked about it is that if I'm going to give, I might as well just put it in this bank account. Right. Well, the dollar, yeah, that's the other thing. The dollars are invested. They are diversified over a couple of different, um, uh, what do you call it, like money markets and mm-hmm. platforms. And, and so they're invested dollars. You can earn interest on the dollars and, and that sort of thing. And so it sits there and yep. I know it's there. Yep. And so if I do get invited to the Nevada Childhood Cancer Foundation dinner and I do feel inspired and I do fill out the little card thing, I can just say, hey, take the pledge out of my donor advised fund. That's right. So of all the all the organizations that ask me, I'm able to say yes and it's all coming out of one account and I don't have to worry about tracking or if I have right. it or if I don't have That's it right. or how you much. You receive a letter at the end of the year that shows your distributions. That's a pretty cool place. thing. Yes, we do all of it. We so do why wouldn't the Federation be for everybody? That's right. Jeez. We are for everybody. All right, what advice, now that you're a seasoned CEO, Yeah. what advice would you give somebody about becoming CEO? Um, take the leap. You don't have to know how to do it all. Part of what I talked about in the Fed talk was the sense of vulnerability in recognizing your strengths and recognizing your weaknesses, asking for help along the way, um, and and really leaning in to um, you know to to what you can offer, what you can provide. Awesome. Do it. Become CEO. <laughs> <laughs> Become CEO. Give all your money to philanthropy. That's right. That would make you very happy. That would make me really happy. Well, I don't want someone to become CEO of Jewish Nevada, at least for a while. All right, I'm going to say thank you for coming on. And I'm going to say thank you for taking the leap and becoming the CEO of Jewish Nevada, Las Vegas. Uh, I clearly am a fan of yours. I talked about how you've activated me and given me this gift to engage, not just with writing a check, but also uh, with some time and talent and doing work in the community that I found very meaningful and impactful. And I don't just speak for myself, I can assure you. I talk to many people in the community about you behind your back and sometimes right in front of you. Right. And you know, we're all, you said people give to people. We are, all of us, my cohorts out there are all activated really because of you and your passion and your leadership. And it, you. it extends beyond you. It's the team that you've been able to not just attract, but also nurture and develop. It goes to Megan and Andrew and all the other folks there that we get to interact with. And that's, to me, a direct reflection of your leadership as CEO. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Stephanie. Thanks, Chaim. What an honor. Thank you for listening. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Takeaways Podcast is about sharing and paying it forward. If you like this show, please make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast and leave us a review. It really goes a long way. And if you really like the show, please share takeaways with a friend. Thank you and tune in next time.